just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm staying right here. Oh, afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I'm joined once again by a special guest star, Tiffany. Hello. Hello. So we had you on, it was the fourth recording we did, but the first one I edited, which was Clue. Mm-hmm. And now this is, this will be episode 38-ish, 38th one we're doing. And it's another murder mystery. So I think about you and I think about killing. That's a good sign. <laughs> I, I feel very loved that, you know. Murder and, and me are in the same thought pattern. Well, and heavy drinking. And L- heavy lots, drinking. Lots of heavy drinking. So I think about death and, and, and alcohol when I think about you. That's good. It's a good this... sign because I'm not a murderer and I'm a teetotaler. So I was going to say, I hope this doesn't speak to my character. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So today we're doing Rope, which I'm sort of cheated with because it's not actually an 80s movie. It premiered on the 25th of September, 1948. But the way I can cheat and make this a movie for our podcast is Hitchcock, who directed it, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, buried this film. It showed in the theaters very briefly for a few weeks, and then he buried it, and he literally took it to his grave. He wouldn't let it be shown, along with a few other films. When he passed away, and I think it was the 70s, the Universal got, got back the rights to all of these, and they put them out in theaters and on VHS. So I saw it in the 80s, so that's my excuse. Also, it's my goddamn podcast, and I'll do what I want. So, yeah, so Rope initially premiered on the 25th of September, 1948. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who, of course, did Psycho, did The Birds, number of well-known films. Uh, it was written by Patrick Hamilton, who did the play it's based on. Hume Cronin adapted it. Who He's an actor you've probably never heard of, but if you've ever seen the movie Cocoon or Batteries Not Included, he was in those. He was an elderly guy in his 80s, but he did a lot of writing in the 40s and 50s, so he adapted it. Arthur Lawrence did the screenplay, and an uncredited credit goes to Ben Hecht, and it stars John Dahl, Farley Granger, and James Stewart. 
of course, a big actor in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He did, uh, it's a Wonderful Life. He did. Uh, See, and I, I never really watched them. You've never seen it's like with the I've, no, I've I've seen it, but it's not something like I've sat down in one episode or like in one <sighs> sitting and watched the whole thing. I've walked in and people watching it, really? and, you know, caught you know a few minutes here and there and so i've probably seen the whole film just not in one it's go. too bad it's um it's a christmas film obviously yes i have seen it every i watch it every december 25th i have been watching it i think every december 25th back till when i was about 12 my mother's side of the family always yeah. did as well and i don't know why i never you know joined the group to sit and watch the whole it's, time it's a but... great film but he's i mean he's a great actor he was one of the great actors of his day mm -hmm. uh he did a lot of incredible films and he wasn't the first choice for his role they had uh they tried to get Cary grant who they actually name dropped in the film and a bunch of others no one would take the part in fact they had a lot of trouble casting this and it's actually pretty obvious why, but give it a second. We'll okay, see. I was going to so, say, yeah. well, what is the reason? So the movie made one, or sorry, the movie cost $1.5 to make, which for a movie of this type in 1948 was a big budget, but it made it back. It made two point, uh, well, it, I, they know exactly how much it made, 2748000 Here's the thing. Hitchcock had always said it lost money. He'd always said it was a, a bad movie that, that was never successful, and that was his excuse for burying the film, but it's something else. Tell me something about the two main characters that is never, ever mentioned. Well, I think it's it's very much, he says, oh, I'm not his keeper, but it's very clear that he is his keeper, you know? Oh, I, I'm not his master, but it's it's very that they're apparent that they're together. And, they're gay. Yeah, they're yes. together, and it's... Men never catch that yeah. when they watch this film. Girls always do. Well, they're gay. See, a lot of guys are thrown off because he, because the one guy, Brandon, dated Janet, one of the other characters. Yeah. But it's pretty clear they're together. In the 80s, most people would not have remembered that this was based based on the play, which was based on an actual event called the Leopold Loeb Murders. Murder. And it was about two college students who committed a murder to prove they were smart enough to get away with it. And they were gay. And that they called it at the time the trial of the century because it was a big deal. And it was scandalous because they were involved. Because these two were gay, and everyone at the time when they, this film was being made would have known it, because they knew in the in the play it's much more it's much more obvious that they're a couple. Mm -hmm. In 1948 Hollywood, no one wanted to be involved in a film in a, in a film about that. Right. But James Stewart didn't give a damn. He was he had no problem with it. It was also that Farley Granger he played uh, Philip the piano player. Mm -hmm. Farley Granger was known to be bisexual, and so a lot of people didn't want to act with him. They didn't want to be seen in a movie with him, especially when he was playing part you know half of a gay couple. Yeah. This is 1948, after I, all. I realize I'm, I'm shaking my head, but you can't hear that on mic, so I'm, I'm just going to, you know, size that I'm, I'm shaking my head at this. About, about what? That, that, it's, that it's just so... How much things have changed. Oh, yeah. But yeah, in 1948, this was a big deal. Here's the thing with the, the actual murder case. The guys were Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Uh, there's a great book about it that I'd read actually last year called For the Thrill of It. In 1924, they got it in... These two had been... I won't say they were boyfriend and boyfriend. They were lovers. Mostly because Nathan Leopold, actually I can't remember which one of the two it was, was sort of the more dominant of the two. He sort of controlled the other one and the way one of the ways he controlled them was by sex. But they started off by doing things like they would go through the parking lot of the university they both attended and they would slash tires and break windows. They snuck into a, a frat house and stole personal effects off the side tables of sleeping frat boys. 
just to prove they could do it. And then they got this idea, well, let's commit a murder. We're so smart, we can get away with it. Mm-hmm. It was a little different than here. They chose Richard Loeb's second cousin, a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks. Their plan was, and they, they planned this out to the T. They would kidnap him. Mm-hmm. They would rape him. They would murder him. They would hide the body. They would deliver a ransom note to the, the boy's parents. And they had this whole complex thing set up where it would be dropped off on an L platform. Uh, L is short for elevated train. This was in Chicago. Yeah. Sort of like the C train, but all yeah. elevated. Yeah. Uh, all ele- elevated above ground. Uh, and that one of the guys would be on the train. And then at a certain point, he would throw it out a window where the other guy would be waiting to grab it. And a car would be waiting and they would switch it. It would like this whole big complex setup like out of a movie. Yeah. It all went terribly wrong right away. They grabbed the kid after school. He struggled. They hit him over the head with a hammer thinking it would just knock him out. Uh, but it killed him on the spot. It shattered his skull. His brains were all over the car. They burned his... They, they stripped him and burned the body and stuffed it in a pipe. The whole thing was a total shit show. And within a couple of days, they were both under arrest. Because this is you know long before cell phones. Long before... In 1924, long before anyone had... Most people had telephones in their house except for the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. These guys were wealthy, but they obviously weren't going to go home to make the call. They made it from a drugstore. And someone remembered them. Someone remembered him throwing out the hammer because they thought it was weird to see a guy drop a hammer into a garbage pail on a street corner. So they were nailed. And it was kind of a big deal. They got uh, 99 years in prison. Loeb was murdered by a fellow prisoner in 36. Leopold was out in 58. He died actually not that long ago. And of course, a part of the, the scandal with the saliciousness of it was these were two, you know, these were two men who were gay, who were who did this to show how snooty they were. It was a big scandal, and when they did the play, the play was written in England, and in England they were just a little more forward about it. Like in the play, mm-hmm. it was very obvious they were gay. In the play, Rupert Cadell, their old teacher, was someone who Brandon had had an affair with. That was the implication that they had had an affair right. when he was a teacher, and so it wasn't just that they were friends. And there was a lot of icky scandal sort of woven into it. So you would hate these guys from the word go. From the word go. In 1948 Hollywood, there was no freaking way any of that was getting into the film. And yet anyone who would go see that film probably knew. Well, it was very apparent right from when Brandon was explaining it all that he wanted to impress Rupert. That, you know, I'm doing this because, oh, when I was under him, we these were the ideas we yeah. spoke about. And I want to represent this to him mm-hmm. and maybe he'll be so proud of me. And Brandon is very arrogant absolutely sure of himself and he's like he's he's got this great facade until rupert comes in the room and he falls apart immediately mm-hmm. makes him nervous he even uh, says as much you stutter when you're excited yeah because he's because it's one of those things you know you're one way with your parents and you're one way with someone else but you can't be that that other way with your parents because they see through you because they they put diapers on you as a kid they they're not they know damn well who you are and so that's why you know that's the beauty of moving out you get to be your own person finally yeah. but yeah Ru- Rupert Cadell sees right through him because he knows what sort of guy this is. So this film came out, it showed in theaters very briefly. It went out of theaters and Hitchcock at that point was already pretty powerful. This is before Psycho, but it was already pretty powerful. And he was able to just bury this film. And he, and he, he called it an experiment that failed when it came out in the eighties, Roger Ebert, the great film critic for the Chicago Sun Times, he reviewed it and he said the same thing. It doesn't quite work. So Why? I totally disagree with both of them. I think it's brilliant. If you notice, it's set up like a play. If you notice yeah. that the, they, they filmed it with 10-minute reels of film, because that's as long as a f- they could buy a reel of film. And you can always see when they change reels. 
the camera passes behind a piece of furniture mm-hmm. and then immediately goes into the next one. Well, that's what they stopped and then, you know, probably. Reloaded. A, yeah. So they practiced this in 10 minute bits. And it was this amazing piece of choreography where they had the walls. And if remember, we're talking about the 1940s. Movie cameras were huge. They were not handheld. So when you see, you know, the movie, if you've noticed the camera tends to walk with the characters, it bounces up and down. Absolutely. That's something yeah. they had to do because it would have been on a big hydraulic system and they would have had to manually pump it up and down to make it look like someone was walking. But these things were on rollers and there was this whole system where they would move into a new room and someone would pull a wall away. It was a, it was quite the, it was almost like a play. They, he wanted it to be like a play. And actually James Stewart had joked during the production, they should put up stands and sell tickets because it was set up to, well, because it was based on a play. So that was part of the experiment. It it was really enjoyable watching experience to have it set up that way. Yeah. Um, Just same angle. And even the, the music cues were markers. Okay. This is the next scene. Mm -hmm. I've watched quite a few plays. So. Mm Watching it, it was very apparent to me that this yeah. this is what they were going for, and I really enjoyed it because you don't nowadays you don't get to watch a lot of films that are like that. It's yeah. it's flashy, it's in your face. It's there's one there's only one cut in this entire film, and that's when they cut to Rupert watching the boys argue about you know they're joking about cut a throat yeah. day and all that. It cut. It's the only cut in the entire film. Everything else is a pan. Yeah, and it's so seamless. It's so yeah. effortless. It's, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, the set is easy. On the one end, the far end, you have the kitchen, which we never get into. You just see through the door. Yeah, see the We door. have the dining room, which we only ever see from the lobby. Mm-hmm. And then you have the den, sitting room, whatever it is, where 99% of the action takes place. The yeah. cameras always point stage right to the audience left. Yep. Except, in a, except when you're meant to notice the difference. Like when Philip is uh, watching the the maid talk to Rupert, it's from a different angle. It's from over his shoulder, but the camera is always not static. It moves left to right, but it's always from exactly the same angle and exactly the same height and exactly exactly the same distance, unless you are meant to notice it. Yeah, it it was intricately planned, as if you're sitting from your seat in the audience. E- exactly, and and I think that's what makes it so brilliant. Uh, I agree. And the entire, and, and with the exception of the opening scene, looking down on the uh, on the street, and then sort of panning into the windows, everything takes place on this set in this apartment that these two guys share. Though, if you remember, they actually mentioned it's the first bedroom, so they clearly have separate bedrooms. Though we're not fooling anyone; we know they're gay. Yeah. You know, it's it was. I never understood why people view this as a a failed experiment. I really don't get it because everything works so damn well. I don't understand why it was something to be hidden. I don't I don't know why it was so failed. He was a perfectionist. He was also a monster. Uh, he tortured his actresses like in ways you cannot possibly imagine. You ever see The Birds? No. Okay, there's no, a scene so. where the, Janet Leigh, the main actress, is being attacked by birds or swarming her. He accomplished this by tying them to her. And Jeez. he did that for days. So she was just a swollen, scratched up. Like he was, He was a monster. He always treated... Actresses like they were his literal property. It was a little gross. There's a great, uh, great podcast called Behind the Bastards. He talks about monsters. He did, uh, you know, Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist. He did uh, Paul Manafort, you know, that scumbag who helped Trump. He's actually covered a lot of Trump's guys, and he covered Alfred Hitchcock and some of the scum. I mean, brilliant director. Let's be clear, but 
he was monstrous to his actors. Yeah. Well, everybody knows the name Hitchcock. Yeah. He was brilliant. And he produced some of the best thrillers, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, all these great films. This is one of his earlier films. And because in his head, it was not perfect. He buried it. Which is unfortunate, I, I think. It is. But, you know, he died and Universal said, screw this, we're putting it out. And it showed in theaters and it came out onto VHS. I, I saw it on Super Channel as a kid. And I immediately fell in love with this movie. I liked the way they spoke. The language, I loved the way they taught. Like, I liked the, the, the accent, that was what we call a mid-Atlantic accent. Mm-hmm. We In the 60s, they sort of killed that with... Um, Gilligan's Island with Thurston Howell III. Well, you haven't got the knack of being idly rich. You see, you should do like me, just snooze and dream, dream and snooze. The pleasures are unlimited. I mean, really. You know, nobody talks like that. A little overdone. Way overdone. But it's called the Mid-Atlantic Accent, and it's an affectation. Thank you, Ben. Mrs. Kendley isn't well, so I took the liberty of bringing my sister-in-law, Mrs. Atwater. She's been staying with us. Oh, delighted to have you, Mrs. Atwater. Delighted to come, dear boy. I've been in New York two weeks. Alice has been here almost the whole time, and Henry is forever cataloging his library. Oh, no, I need to occasionally. I even read one of my books. It's not a real accent. People chose to make this their accent. It was the sign of wealth in, well, the mid-Atlantic, being sort of between New York and the South. Mm-hmm. Right, so you know places like Boston and you know places like that where wealthy people can. You I know, love the sound of it. I I yeah. wish I I spoke like that. It's oh, we ought to do this. Yeah, it's again, it's a very particular accent for a very particular time in a very particular space. Because I've had people say, "Well, are all these people British?" No, no, they're all American. Nay, it's, nay. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's just it's it was an affectation that wealthy Americans on the East Coast used. It was a class divider. It was about class. None of these people are poor. I mean, look, these are two college students. They live in a penthouse in New York City. Like, no one here is poor. Like, Janet, she went to Harvard with them. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly, the, uh, David, the, you know, the uh, the murder victim, his parents are clearly quite wealthy. Ain't no one here poor. Collecting first editions, yes. Because yeah, us true. average Joes can afford first editions. You know, it's funny, there's a lot of things that, like, first editions would have been easier, easy, more easily accessible in 1948, because, Absolutely. I mean, in, in 2019, there's no first edition, you're not going to find a first edition of much of anything. You're going to pay thousands for it if you do find it. Yeah, well, I mean, for older stuff, I mean, for, yeah, if you want to get the, you know, I'm sure first edition of Fifty Shades of Grey is out there somewhere, but <laughs> A, ooh, and B, I, I'm sure it's not my thing, whatever works, but, um, you know, that, that that's a new book, but yeah. books, you know, leather bound and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm talking about classics, yeah. Yeah, like, they would have come from the 1800s and accessing them in 1948 like to put it in your head Mrs. the actress who played Mrs. Atwater was born in 1878 in fact most of those actors would have been the youngest of those actors would have been like the one who played Janet she would have been in her late 20s so she grew up in the Great Depression like we often forget like you know mm-hmm. quite, but think of some of the terms they use I couldn't be the gay girl happy yeah absolutely. or don't worry about Philip he's just a little tight because he was drunk. Yeah. Or they refer to the icebox. Now, you saw it. It was a fridge. It was a refrigerator, an electric refrigerator. But it used to be, up until really the 30s, mm-hmm. before there were refrigerators, there was an icebox. Ice or every week or whatever, someone would deliver a massive hunk of ice. Yeah. And they'd put it in your, well, icebox. Even when I was a kid, referring to the freezer as the icebox, everyone knew what you meant. 
But that's because we picked it up from our parents and our grandparents. Yeah. Even though iceboxes were long gone before any of us were born. They're gone in the... Up until, I think icebox sort of went away after the Second World War when you had a lot of affluence and people could afford a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. But, we, you know, we often forget the, mo- most of these actors probably grew up in places where you kept your food in a, in a, in cold, you know, in a cold cupboard and the really, yeah. and, and frozen stuff you went and bought. Like if you wanted ice cream, you bought it, you brought it home and you ate it. Yeah, you didn't keep that. Unless you had an icebox. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just... It's a whole different world. Yeah. No cell phones. I had to keep reminding myself that when they use words that have a different meaning mm-hmm. today, okay, this is what they mean. Well, isn't that queer? Yeah. Yeah. This is what they mean. Yeah. And when I often show movies like this to my younger friends, they go, wait, what? It's like, no, no. It's just, it's a different, it's a different word. Gay yeah. means happy. Uh, you know, uh, would you like a fag? That either yeah, could they're mean, talking about a cigarette. Or it could mean, um, in the States, a fag referred to a stick bundle. A bundle of fags was kindling. Oh, see, that's, that's yeah. a new one. I knew all the words that they yeah. used in this film. Yeah. In I'm, England, it would be, would you like to go outside and smoke a fag? Yeah. So. I knew all the words they used in this film, but there's still films that I watch every once in a while where I'm like, they used it in this context. I know they don't mean what it means today, yeah. and I'll look it up. The term cool, the way we use it, that goes back to the 50s. But it can also mean, wow, you're, you're playing it kind of cool, which means calm. So, yeah. you know, it's like words gain meanings. But I think for my generation, and I noticed this, my generation to your generation, my generation grew up watching a lot of movies about past eras mm-hmm. and a lot of television about past eras. We seem to know way more about our parents and our grandparents' times Absolutely. than you guys do. So when I hear queer, like in my day in the 80s, no one used queer to mean weird. Or strange. No right. one used gay to mean happy. But we knew gay meant happy because we watched the Flintstones, which the final line of their song is, have a gay Yeah. Just to have that. And, you know, gay doesn't start to be used to mean homosexual until, I think, the 70s. But it's something for my generation, we watch those old films and we have no trouble with that language mm-hmm. because we hear it, we experience it through television and movies that we're trying to appeal purely to our parents and our grandparents. You've grown up in a media environment where movies are always about young people. And the future and far into the future. Well, I mean, there's even that, but the fact that a movie just came out, Avengers Endgame. Yeah. It would not have occurred to anyone in the 80s to make a a comic book movie for children. For adults. For To appeal to it. It would never have occurred to them. But what happens is my my generation grew up but didn't grow up. So... Mm -hmm. You know, they still do that. But in the 70s, that would have been kitty. That's kitty stuff. Movies were made for grownups. And, you know, it, and it's funny you say that because I remember um, my dad taking me to uh, Disney movies as a mm-hmm. child. And he would enjoy them just as much as I did, even though the they 90s were... movies like Little Marine. Yeah, yeah. They were designed that way. They were designed to appeal to adults and kids. That was on purpose. Right. But if you look at cartoons from earlier, like The Black Cauldron or The Great Mouse Detective or movies like that, they're they're kids' they're kids' films, or, or Cinderella, or you know any of the like the golden age ones like Dumbo or mm-hmm. Sleeping Beauty. Those were made for children. Yeah. There was an assumption that when you grew up, you wouldn't see those movies because what are you a kid? Right. These days, it all mixes together. I mean, you know, the most popular, you know, the most uh, popular movies out there are the Marvel movies. 
as many adults as kids go to see them. I know friends who are adults who are your age who wept at the end of Avengers Endgame. <laughs> like, it's a kid's It's a freaking comic book movie. But certainly when this movie was made in the 40s and even when it was shown in the 80s, movies were made for adults. Yeah. Kids' movies were kids' movies and people didn't pump a lot of money into them. No. I mean, 1.5 million, that's actually a fair bit for a movie. I mean, not a, not, I mean obviously, big movies like the Cecil B. DeMille movies, like The Ten Commandments, which I assume you've seen or at least heard of are Ben-Hur or Gone with the Wind, which was in the 30s. Gone with the Wind, yeah. Those were multi-million dollar blockbusters. They yeah. were monsters. They were the Avengers endgame of their day. This was a very small little movie and still cost, you know. Well, talking about budget on it, I, I wonder why the budget was so huge. Is it because they had to use so many different reels or? That's part of be- it. Because the set was fairly simplistic. But it all had to be done on roller wheels. Right. And there was a lot of practice involved and they had a, the set cost a lot. I mean, look, it wasn't a blockbuster budget film, but 1.5 million was probably about twice what you would expect a movie like that to make in that time. Right. And a lot of it was the nature of the set. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. it. There's only, as you mentioned before, only a few rooms. Mm-hmm. So where is all that money being dumped into? It's not like they have multi-locations or... Because... Again, the walls came out so that cameras could pass Everything through. Everything sliding. And that backdrop, in the, in, the, in the back of the den is this gorgeous bay window, mm-hmm. and you see the buildings. That's not just a painted backdrop. They built it. They built the model with the smoke coming out of the stacks and the light changing. You notice the sun goes I did down. notice that. That was a big freaking deal. Yeah. It occurred to me when I saw the light changing that, oh, this isn't just a painted... Yeah. Well, if you look closely, and you notice it mostly at the very end when Rupert opens the window and starts firing his gun, you can see the smoke coming out of the stacks. Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing. Like, they built it's a diorama, and that was not cheap. No. So, that's where a lot of the money went into, and, and, okay. and at that point, James Stewart was probably not cheap to get. Right. Alfred Hitchcock was not cheap to get. <laughs> Even, even though it, this even was, though it was early, yeah. Even though it was early in his career. I mean, after there's before Psycho, and there's after Psycho. And yeah, so it's, um, I've always loved this film. So, this is your first time seeing it. Yep. And I purposely would not tell you what we were watching in advance because I didn't want you looking it up because I knew you'd find it and you'd wind up watching it on YouTube. Because by the way, listeners, you can go onto YouTube, type in Rope Full Movie, and it's there. You can watch it. So I didn't want you because I wanted you to be surprised. So what did you think? I really enjoyed it. I Even at the end of the film, I, I said to you, I need to watch more films like this. <laughs> it, it was really enjoyable. Yeah. Did you, like... How quick did you clue in that they were a couple? I'm curious. Oh, that's a good question. Was it right away? I would say it was within at least the first five scenes. Okay, so... It wasn't instantaneous, but the longer I watched them, the interactions and, you know, how comfortable they were getting extremely close to each other. That's... You notice in the film... Everyone is extremely close. Yeah, everybody is extremely close. That's the the time period. That's That's just a... That's a relic of the era. Okay. Like, there's no personal space, and that's because of the aspect ratio of the film. You remember, you noticed it was right. square. It's not widescreen. Widescreen 32 millimeter film does not become common because it's very expensive. Does not become common until the 60s. So this was just the nature of getting them both in the frame. Right. Yeah. See, and I was watching it, and I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I'd be comfortable. Somebody talking in my face right here. Yeah. This was just the nature of the film. Uh, of the, of the, the shape of the film, right. if the aspect ratio is square. So maybe misinterpreted. 
that is part of what cued me into them being a couple. So maybe I just misinterpreted that. Yeah, because everyone's everyone stands that close. Everyone stands that close. Yeah, but um, I, I definitely within the first five ish scenes was like, there's more to these two than mm-hmm. uh, just being roommates, just being college. Friends. Yeah. Well, they're all those things and more. Uh, you know, when I first clued in, even as a kid, when I realized they're gay, when um, Brandon takes Philip's gloves off for him, just after the murder, yeah, yeah, yeah. where he's sort of sitting there and he he's like, well, he's not undressing his boyfriend, but he's, that's an intimate thing to do. Absolutely. To take off someone else's gloves like that instead of barking and take the damn gloves off. He's looking after him in a very caretakery sort of way. And Absolutely. even as a kid, I mean, I couldn't have been, I couldn't have been 10 years old when I saw this film. Well, 1984 is when it came out, I think. Like, re-released. So I would have seen it in 1985. That puts me at 10. 9, 10. I've never met a gay... I, at that point, I'd never met anyone who was was LGBTQ. I Certainly, that was not something you saw on TV ever. Well, you did, but it was a gay person like this. Like, it was that sort Very of... Very obvious. The, the, sort of the flamer is the term we used to yeah. use. Like, it wasn't... It was Like, these two are just normal human beings who happen to be in a relationship. And they played it well. But that was easy because one of the actors was, in fact, gay. You know, so it, it, it played well, but he, but yeah. watching just the way Brandon takes care of Philip, it was pretty clear there was something very intimate going on here. Yeah. I think maybe what did it for me was when Philip was asking, well, how did you feel about it? Well, how did you feel about it? Yeah. It, no, it's an intimate question to it, ask. It is very intimate. Yeah. And at least in my experience of watching films like this, two men don't often... Tell me how you ha- feel. Ha- yeah. This is a very talky film because it's a play. Yeah. And, 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 you know, most plays are just all talk. Dialogue is the most important part. Yeah. And so everyone talks a little more than they normally would in a situation. Like, I've never been at a party where we had conversations like that. I don't mean necessarily no. mean the, the subject matter, but just the way that conversation is, it, it's so verbose. Mm-hmm. I've had long, I've had. Longer conversations with less talk, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, with with plays, you have to tell, not show. You can, well, you can show, both. but yeah. it's it's more difficult. Yeah. Depending. It's a performance. Yeah. And here, but it's funny because in this, in the party these guys have, and we'll go through the film, but you know, they, they kill this guy, David, they stuff him in a chest, and they have a party right there in the room. Everyone is actually performing. Like, uh, you know, Janet, when she shows up, she's as fake as could be. She's showing off for these boys. Yeah. Kenneth, her ex-boyfriend, he's the only honest one of the bunch. Like, he always seems sort of bewildered. Right. He's not performing, but everyone else is performing. Mrs. Atwater, really darling. Like, really? <laughs> like, that's that's an affectation. But it's not it's not meant to be absurd. She's presenting herself as this very wealthy. You ever watch Downton Abbey? Yes. Do you get, it's a similar feel, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Very sophisticated, mm-hmm. very well-spoken, very well-read. You know, you don't find that anymore. Yeah. Because no one's, re- I mean, again, it's it's a performance. And certainly Brandon's putting on a performance, the more dominant of the two. He, yeah. This whole thing is his three-ring circus. Mm-hmm. You know, Philip is desperately trying to put on a performance, but he's he's completely fucked up from the minute we he's see him. He's broken. He, yeah. he broke the minute they killed David. Yeah. Which... We don't even see it happen. We see it and they're literally, they got his body and he's gone limp. And he's already broken. So whatever, but he must have been confident enough that that Brandon was willing to do it with him. Otherwise, why would you, I mean, if he had known in advance that Philip would break like this, he would never have chosen him as a partner. You think so, though? Or do you think maybe he was just in his overconfidence? Well, 
I have such a good handle on it that I can just make Philip okay with it. I get the impression that Philip was much more confident. I have no doubt that it was Brandon's idea to kill David. Right. But I think Philip probably went, okay. It probably didn't take much to convince him. But I think the actual act of it. But even look with Rupert. Rupert thought it was goddamn hilarious until he started to clue in. Hang on. Yeah, where's David? Like, something's... I don't think he truly understood where David was until the episode near the end where the maid clears the... uh, Yeah. Which is... We'll get to because it's that's so Hitchcockian. Hitchcock used to have the saying, if there's a bomb under the table and it doesn't go off, it's a thriller. If it goes off, it's action. That scene, again, we'll get to it, is... That's so Hitchcockian because... Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then it doesn't happen. Yeah. They don't open it. But that, I think, is where Rupert clues in. Yeah. Oh my God. I think he may be in there. Or he's somewhere. Or we're going to find some evidence. And that's where he starts to get, like, he loses his cool. The, the first time Rupert loses his cool is when he clues in there's been a murder. Yeah. The image that comes up for me with every time watching Rupert mm-hmm. is a bunch of photos on a pulp board. Mm-hmm. And he's taking a string oh, and the attaching conspira- the, the one conspiracy picture board. to the Yeah, next. yeah, yeah. He's making the and connection. Yeah, all through the film, I in my head, mm-hmm. every time a light bulb goes on yeah. for him, I see him, you know, drawing that string from one picture and attaching it to the other yeah. picture and connecting all the dots slowly and slowly, slowly. And, yeah, and he can do that because he's not, he, he sort of, he's, he sort of hangs back. Like, he's he's kind of rude. His first impressions with, with Janet are mean and Mrs. Atwar are mean. And Kenneth says, good to see you. Why? I think that comes from the intellectually superior. It's part, part of that, of and it. part of it is he's trying to maintain his dominance over these boys who were once his students, right? By keeping them constantly off balance, he is right. he is in control the minute he walks into that room, right? Brandon no longer is in control because he starts to stutter. We've already talked about that. Yeah, he starts to stutter. He says, "You you always stutter when you get excited," but he is no longer. Well, he's still in control, but he loses his composure. When he starts to realize, oh my God, there's been a murder. Because you can see it in his face. Mm-hmm. He's no longer smug. He uh, doesn't stand up as straight. You know, it's, I mean, James Stewart was a... God, he was an immense actor. Uh, immense actor. But mm-hmm. they, they all do an incredible job of this. But it's interesting to watch the dominance. You could almost have a chart and say, who's dominant now? Now, every minute, check who's dominant. Check who's dominant. And you can see where it shifts mm-hmm. from Brandon to Rupert. And then suddenly, really no one is. Now it's a back and forth between Rupert and Brandon mm-hmm. as they fight for control of this party. Yeah. Even uh, the back and forth between Rupert and Philip when Philip's playing the piano. With the, with the, uh, what's it with called? The, the, the metronome. The metronome. It drives you yeah. fucking nuts. And you notice he keeps um, adjusting the speed so that it's faster and faster. And, and he faster. plays along with it. Yeah, and and even the um, the melody being. Um, yeah, the play. Yeah, Philip's playing the piano. Though I notice yeah. he's not really playing it, is he? I don't, I didn't look. I, I, I wasn't paying attention that closely. See, I was, uh, mostly because you know, I've seen this so a thousand times, so when I watch it with people I'm doing a podcast with, mm-hmm. I'm paying attention to something else. And it's the first time I noticed that he's he's just sort of moving his hands. Yeah. They should have moved the camera up so you couldn't see his hands. Yeah. But yeah, he plays faster and faster and yeah. faster with the metronome. Well, even the that's major Hitchcock. and minor key. I don't know if that's the, the music itself, but when it was in Philip's favor... I found it was played in uh, major key, and when it was against him or in Rupert's favor, mm. uh, it sounded as though it was in a minor. So 
so I don't bad. know. I don't know major minor because I'm not, um, I'm not a musician. Minor sounds sad. Um, okay. Usually used in. Uh, no, I get the idea. And major okay, is a, yeah. a more cheerful, more yes. exuberant. Okay, yes. you're right. It does. He. It, it, it seems more. He's more relaxed. And as yeah, as Rupert turns the conversation on him, he gets angrier. It's yeah. dark. The playing gets dark. Same music. It never, you know, I'd never thought of that again because I don't know music. You know, it, it would be an interesting scene to show music students. Mm-hmm. To show the use of music as a way to punctuate, you know. If you notice, there's there's no soundtrack to this film. No. There's no score. There's this piece of music and then there's the pieces of music over the radio. Mm-hmm. Which are annoying. And if you notice, they're um, they're totally inappropriate for the party. This is not the music. This is not music that you expect to hear in some high class studio party, right? But I think that's the idea: is that it, it it throws them off. But then at some point, it's clear, and I don't remember seeing it. Philip turns off the radio and starts to play. Yeah, that's I think the only music in the whole thing. The music, I think it's it's meant to punctuate the uh, awkwardness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially the stuff that that Philip is playing. Like you said, it's the major key versus the minor key. It's all about his mood. Because he's the barometer. But Philip is the barometer for how this scene is going because he's such a goddamn wreck. Yeah. Um, so let's go through this and, and sort of see. Actually, first off, I want to, I should ask this. What stands out to you most in this show? There's, is there one thing? Maybe it's a particular scene or a, a particular element. Maybe it's something someone says or it's something overall. Is there anything that just stands out to you? That's a good question. Um, there's a couple of things that stand out. And maybe not for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of the era of the film, sure. like the closeness of mm-hmm. them, how close they're standing and, and things like that. Um, well, you know, but even that is perfectly this. legitimate. Like just, is it so different than what you're used to? Because you've grown up in an era where all movies are filmed on 32 millimeter. They're all widescreen. Mm-hmm. Where they can afford to have people, you know, not be smelling each other's breath. They're so, they're, they're that damn, like, like they're, they're practically fogging each other's glasses. That's how close they are. But Again, that's the nature of, of of the film. Yeah. 32 millimeter widescreen was done. Lawrence of Arabia made just a few years later, which, by the way, is a magnificent film. Or Gone to the Wind made mm-hmm. 20 years previous. Or uh, Wizard of Oz, all done in widescreen. So. I think what, uh, you're, and you're going to have to provide me with the mm-hmm. literary term for mm-hmm. uh, what I'm about to describe. Okay. But um, when they're speaking, what scene was that? He says, uh, oh, well, I'm going to be... In prison, when they're talking about he's going to go... You're going, you're, you're going to die, Brandon, yeah. Yeah, where they're foreshadowing, is is that what Oh, I no, I, I, are you thinking about when Miss Atwater says these hands will bring you great fame? There's, well, there's multiple instances where uh, they're talking about different subjects where it's like, he goes, well, I'm going to be in prison. I'm going to be at the farm. And it's like, oh, oh he's going to be in locked, prison. I'm being locked away. I'm going to be locked of, away. Yeah, it's and, the double uh, meaning, the double entendre. Yeah, there's, no, it, there's so many instances where they say something, and to the people in that scene, it means, different it, things. It means completely different. But us as viewers, knowing what has previously happened, we're like, oh. We know, know what Philip and Brandon know. Yeah. yeah. Well, a good example is when, um, when, when Mrs. Atwater, who's kind of a flake, she, she does horoscopes. Remember, he keeps asking her, well, how's the concert going to go? Because he has a concert. Yeah. Right, because they're going off to Brandon's mother's farm for a few weeks so he can practice six hours a day because he has a, a, a concert at a town hall. And he wants to, and, and Philip wants to know how it's going to go. And that water is palm reading, I guess. Good finger, strong, 
artistic. What about the concert? These hands will bring you great fame. Yep. And he fucking loses all the color in his face. Of course, she has no clue. Yeah. She probably thinks she's just saying it in a poetic way. You're going to do great as a pianist. Yeah. He knows it's something a little different. And of course, we know. Yeah. We know everything. We, in fact, and if you notice, we're never allowed to get really far ahead of Brandon or Philip. We may know, like you noticed, you must have noticed the rope hanging out of the, uh, out of, out of the, uh, the chest when they're moving the books. But it's, it takes a good minute before Philip sees it and freaks out. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, on purpose. That's Hitchcock. But we're never allowed to be very far ahead of these guys. And when we are, it's never for more than a minute. Yeah. But yeah, that's sort of double meaning. I it's- also uh, really enjoyed uh, Rupert brings up Brandon's favorite story. Um, oh, the chickens. About- no, no, no. Oh. About oh, the, the- yeah. The mistletoe bow. That was always your favorite tale, wasn't it? What was that one about? I don't remember exactly how it started. It was about a lovely young girl. She was a bride-to-be, and on her wedding day, she playfully hid herself in a chest. Yes, that's right. Unfortunately, it had a spring lock. Fifty years later, they found her skeleton. So I, I, I thought it was interesting David's that father the tells parallel that story. Yeah, Mr. Campbell that, uh, tells that story. Yeah. Is it that David Kenley. is killed yeah. and put in the trunk, and yeah. they talk about this woman. That... It just happens to be that's his favorite story. Yeah. yeah. But if you remember, Rupert says, you, you know, chests were always showing up in your stories Mm -hmm. so of course he has a he has a chest that is i mean part of that is oh isn't that convenient but of course if if as a kid these sorts of chests appeared in your stories it makes sense you'd eventually want one when you could afford one yeah and isn't it it's a convenient place and and so of course it's in your head so it occurs to you let's put the body in here it's obviously this is all because the writers have decided that you know, I hate, I always hate people saying, well, he had to do that because of this. No, it's because the writer told him to do that. And he set it up so it seems obvious. But yeah, it's it's been set up that chess have been a part of Brandon's life since he was a kid. It's part of his imagination. Mm-hmm. Again, it's we know so much and it's cringeworthy almost because we're going, oh, God, they don't realize what they're saying. I yeah. love it. I love yeah. it. And it's peppered all through the film yeah. of these double entendres. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? Hitchcock will not let you take a breath. Anytime you think you might relax and you get into the flow of the party, Hitchcock pokes you and and cranks that tension level up a little more, mm-hmm. a little more, a little more. That's what Hitchcock does. Hit, Hitchcock is a master, was a master. Mm-hmm. I have ne- People used to say M. Night Shyamalan was the new Hitchcock, and then he shit the bed and made Lady in the Water. But if you look at some of his earlier films, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, the filmmaking style of M. Night Shyamalan was called Hitchcockian. The difference was Hitchcock didn't crater and didn't crater, you know, halfway into his career the way Shyamalan did. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason he was the master because he loved fucking with his audience. He used to say, I want to play my audience like a piano. And here he totally did. Absolutely. I've seen this film dozens of times. I still get played every time I watch it. I know what's going to be said. I know what the next conversation is. I know what the next line will be. I know what the next the next big discovery or next upset is going to be. And I'm still being played by this son of a bitch who made this film two years after my mother was born. Mm-hmm. This film is about the same age as my, you know, it's 1948. And I'm still being played by it. I think, it, and that's, to me, that's what, that's what stands out. This film still knows how to fuck with me after all these decades of having seen it. Yeah. 
So I never understood when people said this is a failed experiment. I don't get that. Well, I, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pull this up and say, you know, we're, we're going to watch this tonight. Oh. I mean, not tonight, but um, yeah. this, this is going to be a film that I, I share with people. Yeah. Well, like I said, you can watch this. If you, if you type in rope, full full movie, it's actually, there's actually two of them. One of them's got like, I think, Chinese or Japanese subtitles, but the other one does not. And, and I'm going to put a link to it on our website when this pops. The whole movie is there. It's, 100, it's an hour 20. And the whole damn thing is there. And Universal doesn't seem to care. Because Universal treats us like the, the red-headed stepchild. I never got that. I think it's yeah. brilliant. It's my favorite mystery movie. Even more than Clue. I, I could agree to that. Yeah. It's, so let's go through it and, and sort of see what we see. So it starts off with really the only scene that takes place outside the, um, outside the apartment, which is this view from the apartment looking down onto the street. And we see it's a quiet day in 1948 New York. Just sort of people walking. I did notice, you know, some neat, very anachronistic things like the police officer with his white gloves taking two boys by the hand to help them cross the street mm-hmm. and stopping a car to do it. Yeah. And it was just a neat anachronistic thing mm-hmm. to see. And then, you know, the camera sort of pans over. We realize we're on, I won't say it's the deck of this apartment because it doesn't have a deck. It's sort of a, like, there's just sort of gravel there. But it's outside the, um, what you call the penthouse window? Because it's clearly up there than the penthouse. Yeah. The, the blinds are drawn and we hear a scream. And then it cuts. One of only two cuts in the film. That and the one later on. And we're in the apartment. And Philip and Brandon have another guy who we know is David. And they've got a rope. Actually, it, it, remember, it zooms in really, really close. And we mm. see the, ne- the rope around his neck. They've strangled this guy. Yeah. And they check his heartbeat. From his chest in the wrong spot using gloves. Yeah, I know. It was funny. I was like, um, initially like, wait, wait, wait. Is that what he's doing? Oh, no. He's checking. Oh, no. He's well, sh- you know, it was the quickest way to show this is what they were checking. Yeah, and it makes it very apparent, easy, understandable to the viewer that this is what's happening. Whether it be accurate or not. Maybe they weren't checking his heart. Maybe they are checking to see if he's breathing. And that's... That's very understandable. Yeah. That would be a lot more accurate. I wonder how many people watching this film for the first time would have wondered if David wasn't dead, if he just passed out. You expect him halfway through the film to like bang on the... I almost wondered that as well when yeah. he was concerned, well, we should check. We should check. Like, well... No, he's dead. You, yeah. you already checked. Yeah, you already dead, made dude. sure yeah. he was dead. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they kill him and they put him in this, this big chest, which is at the... I guess the best way to talk about the set is to imagine you're sitting in the audience. And that's the way we'll talk about it. Yeah. Stage front is the, like the front of the stage is this chest. Obviously in a play, you wouldn't put it there because it blocked the action. Mm -hmm. But here it's right at the front of the, right at the front of the room. And they put him in it. So we only ever see the back and the top of the chest. And immediately Brandon lights a cigarette because everyone fucking smokes in this movie. Um, That's the time everyone smokes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Except, does does Janet smoke? I don't think, I don't think I don't think she does. It would have been less... Women smoking wasn't really a thing until the 20s. I don't think any of the women did. Well, certainly Mrs. Atwater does not. The yeah. older lady. I don't I, think Janet does either. No, I don't think any of the women. Yeah, I don't think so. But all these men smoke endlessly. Yeah. Brandon does it to calm himself. They each had their vice. Brandon was cigarettes and Philip was, was liquor. Lots and lots of liquor, yeah. But I think it's mostly because he's freaking out. But yeah, he, he lights a cigarette. And if you notice, this again, an affectation of the time. They don't have them in their Marlboro pack. They're in cigarette cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did did Rupert smoke? That was the one thing I was yes, thinking about when... Uh... Yeah, because he had a cigarette case. Well, I, I know that. And once but... he got it, he sits down. First thing he does is he takes... Remember, he puts a, Remember he pretends to find it. Then he sits down. 
And then a few seconds later, he takes it back out but, and he lights a cigarette. But prior to that, I don't think, think he, he had smoked. smoked. No. And so that's what I was wondering about. I don't think because so Because anyway. he misplaced his cigarette case. Well, he hadn't. It was still in his jacket Oh, pocket. yes. He had misplaced it, air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, I don't think he'd taken it out to smoke. So I don't think so either. And we'll, maybe we'll notice it as we move through. Uh, but the problem is because everyone smokes so casually... Nobody would have noticed that, oh, he couldn't have forgotten it because he well, hadn't smoked. Well, we would have noticed because everyone's smoking all the damn time. Right. The only one I noticed it is with Brandon because he uses it to punctuate character points. Like when he's, you know, he does it when he's celebrating something mm-hmm. after the murder. So he lights the cigarette. He takes the rubber, the, the rubber gloves, the uh, leather gloves, expensive mm-hmm. leather gloves. And he turns on a light and Philip says, no, 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 turn it off, turn it off. Because he's already freaking out. And he has to take Philip's gloves off of him. And he says, you know what, go have a drink and let's, let's light the place up. No one's ever really, no one ever feels really safe in the dark. And that's such a play thing to say. Mm-hmm. No one says shit like that in real life, but he has to, but you can't just walk around on stage and say nothing. So there's dialogue. Mm-hmm. They talk about having done this murder and, oh, you know, this, you know, this glass he had to drink in and we should really preserve it in a museum. Mm-hmm. But I'd hate to, I'd hate to break up the set. It's such good crystal. Like, yeah. Um, you rich little twerp, you know. On the point of the the darkness, later in the film, Philip says, well, I don't like to perform with light in my, my eyes. eyes. And I thought it was very fitting that, that the, the murder had been done with the lights off. With the lights off, yeah. Because remember, remember Brandon had said, it's a pity we couldn't do it with the uh, the blinds open. Mm-hmm. And he says, you would like that. I says, yeah, well, I guess we did do it in the middle of the day. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never actually connected the light in his face on the piano. I'd never connected that before. Yeah, I don't like That's, to perform with the light in my eyes. Yeah. But and then murdering in the dark. Or murdering in the dark, yeah. And so they have this big, long conversation, and it sort of slowly comes out that there is to be a party, and David is invited. We learn that there's two reasons for this party. That One is that David's father, Henry Kentley, Mr. Kentley, is going to see some first edition books. But also they're celebrating because these two guys are heading off to Brandon's mom's farm to lock him away for lock philip away for a few weeks i think it's six weeks or three weeks they say i forget i don't remember um so he can he can work he can practice for six hours a day because brandon has managed to finagle him an opening it's just interesting to watch the two of them sort of duel back and forth as we realize that philip is clearly broken right away and mm-hmm. brandon is he thinks this is just freaking awesome and then the minute mrs wilson shows up they go into performance mode yeah brandon has to ratchet it down a bit because he's too confident otherwise. Mm-hmm. But if you notice, he sort of loses track of that and becomes more arrogant as the night goes on, which is what Absolutely. which is what his undoing is. And then in Philip's case, he has to suck it up. He has to man up. He's falling apart before our very yeah. eyes. Um, he's also a little bit drunk even before Miss Wilson comes. Because he's on his like second or third. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, cup of champagne. I have no idea how strong champagne is, but I don't imagine three glasses of that is going to do wonders for you. Though I noticed they're drinking about martini glasses, which I found odd. <laughs> I noticed in their. Um... Icebox. Mm-hmm. There were, what, five or six bottles of champagne? Well, that was for the party, though. That, that's still, that's a lot of champagne. For eight people? For eight people, that's <laughs> a lot of champagne. Seven people, excuse me. Mrs. Wilson is not really part of the party. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's just interesting to watch this build up. And Mrs. Wilson comes and we learn that she's been all over Manhattan, just sent, sent out for this particular pate, which we learn later they sent her for, to keep her out of the apartment yeah. long enough to kill David so they would have leeway and if you notice they barely made it which is well that's the timing of the what, film but what yeah. were they doing twiddling their thumbs well talking to him making him feel comfortable comfortable 
So Mrs. Wilson comes and it's it's clear she is actually we missed a point which is when they decide to move move the dinner so that in the dining room they have a, you know a, a, the dinner set up and Brandon while talking they're pouring the champagne he gets this bright idea and you're not sure what it is and he says you know grab the other uh, grab the other chandelier and they set it down on the chest where David is and they decide they're going to set the food up there mm-hmm. because Brandon can't help himself. It's also super smart because that means they're not going. No one's going to open the chest. Open the chest, yeah. Oh, what a beautiful chest! Can I see inside? Yeah. Or whatever. And Mrs. Wilson is offended by this because she thought she set a beautiful table, and she did. But then they move it all, and she's actually offended that yeah. well, they're going to eat on the couches and and they'll go and serve themselves. They're turning this into a buffet. That's yeah. not how this is done. And lecturing her guests about how this is not okay and. Yeah, well, she, it's clear she feels at home with him, especially with uh, Rupert Cadell, who I get the impression she works for mm-hmm. as well. Because remember, he mentions, or she mentions that he only brings this out on certain occasions. So I think she works for both of them. Mm-hmm. And maybe she does the, she's the maid for, for the two of them. Yeah. They, they're never quite clear about that. But she clearly has a thing for, for him. Well, and doesn't he mention at one point, I uh, may have I'm, to marry that I woman. may marry her, yeah. Yeah. Because despite the fact that he's high class, he clearly has no interest in class. Mrs. Wilson is really off-put by the fact that they're doing this, and so is, oddly enough, Philip, even though it's smart to have it there, because again, it stops people from opening the chest. Everything is a, a fencing match, isn't it? A verbal fencing match. Mm-hmm. First between, back and forth between Philip and Brandon, and now Brandon and Mrs. Wilson, and Brandon and Philip. Mm-hmm. But Philip never picks a fight with anyone, but Brandon picks a fight with everyone! Yep. It, it, it's kind of funny. Brandon's also kind of mean to Mrs. Wilson, I think. Like, he... He looks down on her, I think, much more than Philip does. Like, he, she is just the maid to him. You are the help. Yeah. Despite the fact that she actually does kind of sort of take part in the party. Kind of, sort of, just because she knows. Like, yeah. he, he points out, well, you'll get, to re, you know, you'll get to reignite that romance tonight because, you know, Rupert Cadell is coming. Yeah. I, uh, I think Philip realizes the implications of, you know, putting the cloth on the chest and the candles. It's, it's almost like it's a funeral well, Brandon says it. It's a ceremonial altar for our sacrifice. Like, yeah. And so, you know, at that point, Kenneth arrives, and we start to learn the way these people interact with each other. That like Kenneth is, was David's best friend. Mm-hmm. Kenneth dated a girl named Janet, but is now engaged to David. Mm-hmm. And Brandon makes the smart-ass comment, well, I think your chances with her have improved. Like, dude, really? Yeah. Like, that was a little much. Actually, I think what first gets Rupert's attention yeah. is... He's setting up a, a love triangle between David, Kenneth, and Janet. Yeah. You know, and then Janet shows up and she is, again, as fake as can be, but immediately knocked off her game by the presence of Kenneth, her ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that Brandon thinks she dumped Kenneth for, a, for David because remember he asks her, why did you leave him? Well, he's nicer. Well, he's certainly wealthier. And she looks like, that's low. And of course, what we learn later is Kenneth dumped her and i think it's because he thought she was vapid right because remember later on when she sort of has that confessional in front of the mm-hmm. in front of the the trunk uh he says wow i really made a mistake i was an idiot yeah i thought kenneth was quite naive that's the way oh, he, he came is. across and- he is he's the only one not putting on a show here today yeah yeah he's he's definitely naive but she's not look if she went to harvard if she got into harvard she's not a dumb person no and she's clearly not dumb. She connects the dots as quickly as everyone else. But she's so busy presenting herself as the life of the party, the gay girl, as she calls herself. Mm-hmm. It's, this is very much Brandon watching all these people show up expecting to perform for this party and then getting knocked around. 
It's quite funny to watch. Mm-hmm. Who shows up next? Right. Um, uh, Mr. Kentley, David Kentley's yep. father. And Mrs. Atwater, his... Wife is unwell. His wife is unwell. That's right. And it's and who is she? She's she's the wife's sister. Sorry, yes. sister-in-law. And she's a flake. She's Mrs. Howell. I mean, really, darling. Like, she's that bad. Yeah. She's over the top. And it's clear that the younger people in the room find her a little comical. Yeah. But here's the thing. She's she's very well-meaning. And they start, when they mock her later on, have you seen that picture at the Strand? The it's something, something with her. Yeah. Or was it the plain something? And then that's the running joke. Yeah. And then Rupert is making fun of her. And you can see Janet, who's standing in front of them, sort of smirking because she sees that Rupert is screwing with her. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's mean. Yeah. But she shows up and she's kind of she's kind of spinny. But she's an older version of Janet. She's putting on this performance of being, she's just a lady. She doesn't think about complex things. She's yeah. just nice. and She can read the stars, darling. Yeah. It, you know, it's like, nah. but he's very serious and he's very to the point. He's very genteel is the term. Like he's yeah. later when they have that conversation about murdering people, he's very offended. But in the minute they apologize, oh, it's all right, dear boy. Let's move on with the party. Like it's, yeah, you know, he knows how to perform as well. And they show up and right off the bat, it's clear they're very worried. Like, where is David? He said he'd meet us here. But there's that level of tension right off the bat, and they use the phone to make calls. Where is David? Like, the party's already going off to a shitty start because Kenneth and Janet have bumped into each other, and there's tension there, though there shouldn't be. Like, Kenneth is totally fine with it, but like you say, he's very naive. Like, eh, Mm -hmm. whatever. So, yeah, so now you have the parent, or you have the father, you have David's father, David's, what would you call her, aunt, whatever, uh, Mrs. Atwater. You've got his practically fiancé, Janet Walker, his former best friend, Kenneth, all in this room. With Brandon needling all of them. Mm-hmm. Though he never really needles the, the father. The father is sort of meant to be the calming influence in the party, I think. Yeah. But everyone else is part of this three-ring circus. And then at what point... Actually, there's one point we miss, which is, again, total Hitchcock. Mrs. Atwater walks into the room, sees Kenneth, and says, David! And right. Philip freaks out and breaks the glass in his hand. Because David and Kenneth look a lot alike. Right. And there's immediately this conversation, oh, every, you know, he's often mistaken for my son. But we're not focused on that. We're focused on the fact that there's bloody blo- broken glass in Philip's hand. Mm-hmm. Because the minute he heard the word David, he snapped. Panicked. And he snapped. He cracked. Yeah. Like the glass. Even then, Brandon is still pushing the buttons. And then Rupert arrives. And it's cool. If you notice, he's the only one who isn't announced. We he never... kind of sneaks in. You just yeah. see him hanging out in the background. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Wilson clearly loved him. And, it, you know, if we listened back, we might even hear the phone ring. Because probably they're calling from the lobby. Yeah. These days it would be a buzzer system. But back yeah. then it would have been a lobby. It would have been a guy at the door. We may just not. I mean, if we went back, we could probably listen and hear that. We might even hear Mrs. Wilson mumbling in the background on the phone. Right. But we don't really see it until Philip starts to play. And they're having a conversation. And Rupert's just there. Mm-hmm. And he's instantly different than everyone else. He doesn't like parties like this. It's pretty clear. Because he sets everyone on edge. He's rude yeah. to Janet. He's rude. You know, Kenneth says, it's good to see you again. Why? How do you do? Hello, John. Oh, Miss Walker. How'd you know? Brandon's spoken of you. Did he do me justice? Do you deserve justice? Well, well, little Kenneth Lawrence, how you've grown. Hello. Uh, oh, now come, Kenneth. School's out. You can say it. Rupert, you're the same as ever. 
It's awfully good to see you again. Why? <laughs> well, <laughs> don't mind me. So he's not he's not willing to just burn the party down, but he likes, you can tell he likes to do what Brandon does. We see where Brandon learned it. Yeah. How to keep people off balance. Push buttons. Push buttons. Be rude when it's, say the unexpected thing, the impolite thing. Like if someone says to you, it's a pleasure to meet you. You don't say, why? Yeah. You say, oh, and you too. Yeah. Catch people off guard and, and put them off kilter of, oh, well, how, how do I respond to this? Yeah, exactly. But he does it because it amuses him. I think it's part of it is to show you he's in charge. Part of it yeah. to show you how smart he is. But part of it, I think it's just he's amused by screwing with social conventions. Mm-hmm. He, he knows this is the game. And he's purposely screwing with people. Mm-hmm. So but all that means is you don't get invited to a lot of parties. But Brandon immediately falls apart. He stutters and he gets he gets nervous and his hands shake and fidgets a lot. And what does Rupert do? You always did stutter when you were excited. What's wrong? Like he just... Yeah, can't help it. He can't help himself but keep these people off balance. That's his tactic. Mm-hmm. That's probably how he kept these kids on their toes. When he was her teacher. Yeah, to maintain that power differential. That, that power dynamic. He's not yeah. willing to be, you know. But it was also different. He was a housemaster, which means in addition to being a teacher, he lived in their boarding house. Mm-hmm. Make sure they went to bed on time. Make Kept sure they weren't Yeah, make sure they weren't uh, sneaking out at night. Think of Professor McGonagall looking after Gryffindor. Snape looking after Slytherin. Same sort of thing. The, the yeah. housemaster. It's a very boarding school thing to do. But he goes in and then immediately... Instead of Brandon versus someone and Brandon versus someone else, now you've got two ringleaders working in, working opposite each other, Brandon and Rupert. Yeah. Rupert trying to figure out the room, Brandon trying to maintain control of the room, but totally unable to do so. Two circuits masters, each with a whip and a chair, trying to get everyone to dance to their tune. And it causes chaos. The characters even say, well, this is a uncomfortable, strange, awkward party. It is. Everyone, every, even Wilson says, I knew that this morning when they were, they, it's funny, they both woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, mm-hmm. which it's clear this party is a shit show. Mm-hmm. But parties like this are often shit shows. Because one guy shows up in a bad mood, blows up the party. Yeah. Here you got two people who are off and a third who likes to push people off balance. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like it, the party sort of devolves into chaos, and that's where they have this joke where, where they they talk about Rupert, who's no longer a teacher; he's a publisher of, of philosophy books, and they start talking about how the intellectually superior should be able to murder, and they start getting into jokes. And Mrs. Atwater is being very polite. Oh, isn't that funny? And she laughs along, mm-hmm. but then they start to get macabre. Have you had any difficulty in getting into our Velvet Rope restaurant? Frightful. A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, Madame. And if you'll kindly step this way, or no, a step over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. <laughs> Rupert, you're the end. Mr. Kentley, David's father, is very offended by this. Yeah. He doesn't like it. He's very uncomfortable. And it's the closest they come to shouting. Well, okay, there is actually some shouting, isn't there? But There is. It's... Because there's actually already been the chicken story. So there's already been some tension. Right. Where they talk about how... Yeah, because remember, because remember he comes out of the... Serving food to Mrs. Atwater. Right. I don't eat chicken. Plate of chicken. Yeah, yeah, because he because he strangles chickens on the farm, and one of them got away, and 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 it's bothered him ever since. Yeah. And he says, "Yo, I've never strangled a chicken in my life," which Rupert knows is a. That's the first hint something's real. That's actually the the other only cut in the film. The camera cuts to him. You realize Rupert knows this isn't true. This isn't true. That's actually the start of a new quote unquote scene. One of these ten minute reels. Right. 
when they had to stop. Remember, most remember we talked about how the camera passes behind something, and that's how they cheat. They stop the camera, but you're meant to, it's meant to look like it's one long film scene. That's the only one they don't do that way, which is the sudden cut to Rupert going, looking at him going, yeah, that's bullshit. Wait a second. Yeah. And so, yeah, so they've already had that fight where actually Philip got quite loud. And then they get into the thing about slashing throats and stabbing people and shooting people. And, you know, Mr. Kentley becomes very upset. Of course, he's already upset because now they're starting to genuinely worry about David. Mm -hmm. His posture is quite rigid, very, yeah. you know. And, and at this point, I think even Brandon realizes he needs to cut the party short. So he invites him, let's go take a look at the, bo the books and let's get everyone out of here. And that's when Rupert starts working these people he starts like we talked about the metronome scene where philip's playing mm -hmm. you got the metronome going and you use this sometimes well, i thought only beginners did i must say all right i'll ask you what do you suspect oh i've forgotten where's david philip he purposely sets it to go faster and it sets philip on edge and he sort of now, at one point he says, you're unusually allergic to the truth tonight. It's the second time you haven't said it. Why have you lied to me? Why have you lied to me? He knows something's wrong. I don't think it occurs to him that there's been a murder involved. I mean, that's a pretty extreme thing. You're acting weird, therefore murder. You know, but clearly he's on to something and it's it's clearly extraordinary, whatever it is. And, and it, so now, it, now you have almost two stories going on. You've got the party, which is already a chaotic shit show of people who are nervous. And then you've got, you know, Rupert Cadell trying to, as politely as possible, figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah. And I love it. Strain information out of the situation. But that's Hitchcock. It's, okay, you're, you're now used to the tension of this party. Let's throw a second story in. And that's the investigation. And it gets worse and worse. And eventually, you know, there's been several calls from Mrs. Kentley, who's at home sick, we've learned. Where is David? She's panicking. I mean, there's no point talking about this, you know, see, you know, bit for bit, because it's all just conversation. But by the end of this, by the time the Kentleys leave, this party has fallen apart. Because now Mrs. Kentley is in an absolute panic. And Mr. Kentley says, my wife needs me. I need to go. Mm -hmm. And Janet, Janet says, can I go with you? Because, of course, it's her fiancé. And she wants Kenneth to come along and... At this point, Rupert, I think, knows. Yeah. Because you could see the look in his eye like, oh, fuck. Because he's got this sort of stare in his eyes. You notice that? He, Off in the distance. And, and he sort of looks down like, oh, my God, this isn't polite anymore. Because remember at one point he says, like, you've made me ashamed of everything I've ever said. This is, I think, his first clue. Holy shit. Something. I've been playing this so cleverly and suddenly this is not clever anymore. Something has gone right off the rails. Yeah. Um, and everyone leaves. And that's where he knows because Mrs. Wilson hands him a hat. Oh, silly, it's not your hat. And inside, it's monogrammed... DK. David Kentley. And now, in this day and age, yeah. you think, oh, it's just probably the name of the brand. But in those days, no, no. When you got a hat like that, you had it monogrammed. Yeah. Well, and he initially puts it on his head. Yeah. And it, and doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So, oh. Well, it's the, same, it's the same, uh, same hat, though. More or less the same hat. It's a, a yeah. gray fedora. So, immediately, we know something's wrong. And Brandon... And this just totally sends Philip off the deep end. Brandon ties the books that Mr. Kentley's going to take. He's tied them with the rope. That they've hung him with. And they sort of go off. Now, we did miss that one scene, like the, the, the scene I said we would talk about, which was clearing off the, uh, the chest. The chest. It's one of the few times the camera is at a weird angle. 
because normally we're looking as the audience would onto the scene, but here the camera is down and low, like we're peeking over yeah. the audience's right side, the actor's left, stage left side of the chest. And uh, I think the purpose of that is to show, because all of the other characters are in this deep conversation. Off screen. Off screen. Sitting on the couch talking. And and I think the purpose of that is to say they're caught off guard. They're not paying attention to what is happening with Mrs. Wilson and this chest. Who we see going back and forth between the chest, walking through the lobby to the... Kitchen. To the, no, not the, not the dining room. Well, first to the kitchen to take the, the food away. She puts it in the, in the ice box. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then she starts moving stuff back and forth and she, you know, she moves a few books that Mr. Kentley has decided not to take back into the den, mm-hmm. even pushes aside the, uh, the tablecloth, sets them down, and then she starts, and this is all happening while there's a conversation going on in the background, like, where do you think David is? So we're listening to the conversation and watching her slowly clear this chest. Yeah, the growing tension of, oh my god, are we actually going to get to see them discover his body while they're talking about where could he be? That scene is two minutes long. Almost almost two minutes long. And it's just, it's it's Hitchcock just turning up that tension more. Cut it with a knife. Oh, it's it's the most tense moment, I would suggest, even more so than when Rupert comes back and confronts them. Absolutely, I would agree. Because you're going, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. It's going to happen. Because they do open the chest. They do. Like, but just enough because they want to put the rest of the books back and Mrs. Wilson's going to do it. And Rupert even steps in, oh, let me help you. He's being, he's being gallant. Mm-hmm. And Brandon steps in, no, no, it's fine. Leave it till later. Well, what's the big deal? We're just going to put it in the chest. But no, no, come back the next morning to do something. It would take 30 seconds. That's weird. And like, yeah. So the Kentleys and all of them go off. And Brandon at this point, even he, like he's, what's he do? He takes a cigarette out. To relax, mm-hmm. he uses nicotine to calm himself. Whereas others, I notice, just take it because they need it. You know, it's Nick fit. But he takes it to punctuate an ah moment. Yeah. Um, and then the phone rings, and you said it. You knew. It I knew was, it was Rupert. Yeah. And you looked at me. It's Rupert, isn't it? And it's like I'm trying to keep my mouth shut. Like, don't smile, don't smile. I was like, I yeah, it's and, Rupert. It's got to be Rupert. There's and, nobody else it could be. And and Philip freaks out. He won't even go back on the phone. And so Brandon has to go back on the phone. Why, sure, come on up. He's lost his cigarette case. He comes up and he's got this gorgeous gold and silver cigarette case. I remember my grandfather used to have one like, Mm -hmm. very much like that. Yeah. Because my grandfather was that kind of old, I won't say old world because he was born in in Montreal, but older manners, that was him. Yeah. You didn't, it was, it was crass to carry your cigarettes in a, in the, in the box, you carried it in a case. Though by the time I knew him, he'd quit smoking, but I remember the case. Right. One of my few memories of of, of of Philip. I mean, look at it. Like that. That's he could have been in this play. Look at that picture. Absolutely. Yeah, he could have been in that play or in this in this film. He would have. He would have been Mr. Kentley. Um, maybe that's why I think so well of Mr. Kentley. He reminds me very much of of my my Zeta, my my grandfather. Right. Yeah. So he had this. He has this. Um, you know, Rupert comes in and says, oh, I, I've lost my cigarette case. And he faces us, the camera, the audience, takes it out of his pocket and hides it behind the books where Brandon and Philip, I'm not sure if they even notice that he's doing it. I don't think they do. And True. then he has that drink and he won't quite leave. And like you said, he's sitting in that wingback chair and they're standing on top of him. Now, again, part of that is the nature of the the film they're using. Mm-hmm which is square, like the old TVs. So to, to fit in the scene without having, without having you know, the, the camera panned so far back that we see the whole room, 
yeah. the whole set, we have to be that close. So that's part of it. But part of it is also... They were standing over him in a very looming. threatening manner. Well, not so much Philip. I think Philip just wants everything. He just wants this shit to go away. But yeah. Brandon, at this point, has a gun in his pocket. A tiny little six-shooter. I don't think he points it. At one point. Because he's got he's, his hand in there in, in a very casual hand in his pocket sort of way. At one uh, point, he does grab it and point it in his pocket. Because that's right. Because you that's can right. see the barrel. But you're right. The majority of the time, he's very nonchalant of, oh, yeah, yeah. Th- this is just comfortable for yeah, me. Because and- they joke at one point, well, how would you get rid of David? And he starts walking him through. Because he knows what's happened at this point. Mm-hmm. He says, and then I knock him on the head and walk him walk him out. And you can see Brandon smiles and takes his hand out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. Oh, he doesn't know anything. But then, of course, Rupert turns the dial back up and says, but of course you'd have to hide him because you couldn't be seen in the middle of the day. And the hand goes back into the pocket. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and then eventually Rupert calls him out. And it's like, you're very, it's like, you're hiding something. And it's all centered on that pocket. After all, that is a gun in there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he laughs off, oh, oh, ha, ha, and he throws the gun. That's, by the way, don't throw guns. Uh, that's bad. Yeah. Um, it would be worse if it were cocked, but, you know, he throws the gun. Oh, you know, my mother's worried I'm bringing it up because there have been some burglaries in the country. Ha, 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 ha. No one believes this. No. They are, it's funny because they are, the more casual they behave to Rupert, the less he believes them. Yeah. Because I get the impression that Brandon, despite the fact that he thinks very highly of himself and he's very mirthful, I get the impression he's a very serious person. Yeah. In fact, I get the impression both of them are quite grim and probably have always been so. Philip comes off as a very nervous individual the best of times. And Brandon comes off as way too intense. Absolutely. Like that's, I'm sure, how they became a couple. Is that Brandon saw someone with whom he could get companionship, sex, and a controllable partner from. Yeah. And latched onto him. And Philip found somebody that could provide him with some security being that he's so controlling. He's so, yeah, emotional security. Well, okay, that's in a in the worst way possible, in an abusive oh, way not, possible. not in a healthy way. But this is also clearly a long-term relationship, going back to prep school. Mm-hmm. And Rupert knows how to play on that. Because he's not stupid. He knows these two are involved. Clearly, there's a very, there's a lot of history. And so Rupert knows exactly what buttons to push. So the more they laugh, the more he knows they're full of shit. And then it comes out and he, you know, he, who is it? Reaches for, Philip reaches for the gun and there's a struggle and the gun goes off. And, it, you know, it's, um, I think it was the, the play, the playwright Chekhov who said, if you see a gun in act one, in act three, it must go off. And here it does. And the very end of the play, it goes off. I'm not sure about you, but I, I relaxed at that point once the gun went off because now, you know, it's all out in the open. There's no going back. Right. Right. There's no pre up until that exact moment. Maybe Brandon could have said just the right thing. Maybe Rupert decides to walk away and call the cops later or is convinced that it's all just in his head. But the minute, the, the minute Philip reached for that gun and there's a struggle. Yeah. The point of no return. Yeah. So it ends with him, you know, there's the shots fired. He gets the gun out of Philip's hand. He pushes them both away. He opens the chest violently. All the books come falling off and, mm-hmm. Then he starts yelling at him, you know, like, I can't believe, you know, you make me embarrassed. I was wrong. Every human has the right to live and have dignity. Brandon tries, remember, to sell him on the idea of you always said this was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that lasts about five seconds because Rupert didn't start thinking about how wrong he was when he saw the body. Right. It was at the party. Right. Like when he realized something's very wrong here. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he's not stupid. He knows why he's been invited. He's been invited to gaze upon the glory of what Brandon has done. Mm-hmm. Because why else invite him? 
Like, well, otherwise, what's the point in having him there? He doesn't know the Kentleys. He's not a party guy. That's clear. He doesn't do well in parties. Right. So what the hell is he there for? And he figures it out. He's there to bear witness. Yeah. At the beginning of the film, because we know what's what's going on, I originally thought that Brandon was going to make it known to Rupert what he had done mm-hmm. as a as a as his display. Look, look at, at me. look at what I have done. Yeah. Be proud of me. Obviously, the later you get into the film, it's it's apparent yeah. that he wants it to be a secret. Yeah. But remember, he they talked about him roping him in at one point. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's um, it's neat. I mean, the problem is bringing in a third person, it, it then becomes, well, how quickly does the secret get out? Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that he wants to prove he's as smarter or smarter than his teacher. I can take my teacher on. I can show him I'm as smart as I think I am. I can get away with this. He's the one. Remember, he says he's the he's the one guy who would appreciate this. And mm-hmm. he's the only one who would ever figure it out. Otherwise, this is too easy. The others are too easy. It's too boring. Yeah. This was about Brandon proving he was superior. Even to Philip, certainly to David, I am smarter than everyone around me. Mm-hmm. Turns out he's a little too smart for his own good. And then it ends with, like you say, the oddest way to call the cops ever. He fires three. <laughs> he he fires uh, three rounds out the window. Yeah, that I think is just about staging, because the the telephone in the house is in the bedroom, which is not on stage. It, it kills the tension in the room to see him storm off stage. And then have the two of them sitting there, almost catatonic, while you hear him go, Hello, police! There's been a murder! Yeah. This film it would have been too... too cheesy. Yeah, this film is very subtle. Like, as out in the open as it becomes in the end, it's got that heightened level of dialogue to it. Yeah. And so this is just... It allows the three of them to sit there in silence. Him with the gun beside the body. Philip stunned at his piano, his one safe space. That's it. If you notice any time in the film where he starts to panic... He immediately moves towards the piano. Yeah, even down. even in the conversation before anyone, even before Mrs. Wilson shows up, he gravitates towards the piano. Well, it, it puts a wall between him and whatever else is going. Yeah, on. because no one intrudes on him when he's seated there. But just even just the presence of the piano, the first like the first time Brandon really sort of grabs and says, "I am not going down because of you." It happens standing beside the piano bench. Mm-hmm. So he sits down at the piano, and Brandon, ironically, goes and pours himself a very leisurely drink. And you said, wow, he's taking that really slow. Mm-hmm. It is, after all, the last drink he'll ever have. I mean, if it was the last drink I was ever going to have, I'd pour that quick and get it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he's, remember, he's not, he's not a base, he's not a peasant like you. He's oh. intellectually, and he's, he's of a different class. So he has poured, you know, slowly puts the ice in, and then pours a little bit of alcohol and then a lot of water because he is classy and he's going to enjoy it. Remember, the drink isn't just about mm. numbing himself. It's the act of having a drink. It's mm. snootiness. It's class. The, you know, the people listening to this who are going to love this movie, people who love Downton Abbey. Yeah. Yeah. Why doesn't he just take the bottle and swig it back? Because that's not what he's experiencing for the last time. The, the, the alcohol. It's right. the act of being sophisticated. And that's what this is. Again, it's all about performance. Yeah. We're watching a perform. We're watching people perform for us while performing for each other. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. So now that we've gone through it, if you had to give this, say, five, you know, out of five stars, where would you put it? I think I would give it a five. Like, I really enjoyed it. There wasn't anything that... Normally, if I'm going to rate a film lower, it's mm. because right off the cuff, there's things I have issues with. And I'm sure if I were to sit here and really pick it apart yeah. deeper, I'd say, oh, well, maybe there's this flaw here, this mm. flaw there. But just initial gut, 
I really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and I would share it with other people. So I think I think that merits it's on, a five. It's going on your Facebook page tonight, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. That's I, I wanted to post it because I post it about once a year. Hey, everyone, watch this film. I didn't do it because I didn't want you to get the hint. I didn't want you to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I give it a five as well. Like for the first time, out of dozens of viewings, I noticed that uh, Philip isn't actually playing the piano when he's talking to Rupert. Right. Normally, things like that really bother me in a film. It really doesn't bother me. I don't care. Other than now, it's going to be distracting when I see it. I just, this film is perfect to me. I object to Hitchcock having buried this. I object to Roger Ebert saying it's a flawed movie. I think it's perfect. Yeah. Well, and, and um, it's funny that uh, we talk about all the tension in it. Mm. I still found it a relaxing and easy to watch movie. Because it's so beautifully written. Yeah. It's like Shakespeare. You just, you enjoy it. You chill and enjoy it. Yeah. yeah it's, I, I enjoy the tension. It's not this uncomfortable, like, this is just... It's just... Yeah. Well, that's what a modern film would be, right? Like, they would just... It'd be like the director sort of grabbing hold of your heart and just squeezing, 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 and then yell, boo! There's none of that here. It's it's relaxed. It's enjoyable. There's... It's very obvious there's tension, and and you feel it, but... At no point am I uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Well, it's like the part where they're making fun of Mrs. Atwater. Oh, there's something, something with, with what's her name in it. Mm-hmm. And Janet's smiling because she knows Rupert's just messing with, fun, her. messing with her. And we realize there's something off-putting about it. But at the same time, it's clever people having fun. It's a Jovial. Dr- it's what they used to call a drawing room drama. The idea of a Downton Abbey thing or an Agatha Christie thing. Mm-hmm. A bunch of high-class individuals, very polite, very perfect Sitting around having genteel conversation about something that's deadly serious. Mm-hmm. It's meant to put you at ease. It's a very British thing. Uh, and, right. you know, Hitchcock being British, of course, in a bit British play. and you know, But yeah, it is it is very relaxing, isn't it? Despite the fact that there's tension. Despite that it's a murder. I've... Yeah, there's been a murder. It's, it starts with a murder. This isn't a whodunit. We know whodunit. Yeah, despite we watch it them being do it. A, a tension-filled movie and about murder, I was relaxed watching it all the yeah. way through. <laughs> It grabbed my attention at no point, being that I'm only running on three hours of sleep, <laughs> yeah. at no point was I about to nod off, yeah. lose interest. It had my attention the whole time. And that's the one common thing, the one common thing of anyone I've ever shown this film is that once they get into it, you can't let go because you, you hang on every word. Mm-hmm. Because there are no wasted words in this entire play. I keep saying play, but this entire movie, there are no wasted words at all. Mm-hmm. Everything matters. Everything has symbolism. Even the throwaway lines with Janet being all bubbly and, and, and silly, you realize that's going to matter later Yeah. when you realize she is exactly as smart as you would hope a strong female character to be. She was putting on this show and Kenneth goes, wow, I was an idiot. Because now he realizes she's not a bubblehead. Mm-hmm. Like everything matters. Everything is setting the stage for something else. It's sort of like uh, I'm appreciating Game of Thrones and listening to people talk about it. Like I, I, I told you I give up on the show, but I listened to Pod Save America, a wonderful podcast by a group of guys who worked for Obama. And they're all Game of Thrones fans. Right. So they did a Game of Thrones, a whole episode, instead of talking about politics, they talked about Game of Thrones. And they talk about how everything matters. Nothing is a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Things that happen in season one pay off in season five. You've got to pay attention. And that's this in an hour and 20 minutes. There was even a, a line in there. I don't know why I chose the word, that word. Oh, you chose it because... The- you, you, you often choose words for sound and not meaning. Yeah. And he says, I'm not sure why I chose that. Because that's clearly a lie. Mm-hmm. But he's, uh, the term we use now is uh, gaslighting. Yeah. Making, tell, trying to convince someone that what you knew is not true. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the gaslighting. No, no, yeah. I've always said this. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. 
Yeah. By the way, that comes from a movie called Gaslight from the 1930s. I'm going to find that for you because it's like this. He's trying to gaslight him by saying that. Well, you often choose words for sound instead of meaning. Is there anyone who believes that's true? Mm-hmm. But he's trying to confuse Rupert. So Rupert will go, yeah, maybe I'm just tired. Maybe I'm just going to go now. Mm-hmm. doesn't work, but... No, but it's... I think it's just showing that, you know, each word is important yeah. in this film. This is this is a fe- this is like a a three-way fencing match, sometimes a an eight-way fencing match, but no one's using an actual fencing foil. Mm-hmm. So. So on that, I think we'll we'll let her go and and now I have a piece of rope I would like to show you. Go watch so. it. <laughs> go watch this film. It's good. 